Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We're in Revelation chapter 11. Um, and here we have one of my favorite scenes of the Bible. It's of the two witnesses. Uh, the question is, identifying these two witnesses is a, a real challenge. Um, so what we have, remember, Revelation uh, has a lot of action, followed by some uh, slower uh, uh, chapters, followed by more action. So you get the seals, you get the 144,000, you get the trumpets, and then you get uh, the two witnesses, everything we have here. Then, you, then you're going to get the seven bowls, and then it drops out. So, so we're in that interlude right now. And so we meet the two witnesses here, and uh, starting in verse 1, but let's skip down to verse 3, um, where they are first mentioned. Uh, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Well, the question is, the big question is, who are the two witnesses? Um, and so if you read throughout church history, read scholarship, uh, the answers to this are all over the map. Um, some will say it's Elijah and Enoch because they, they never died in the Old Testament. That's an early church. I think it's Tertullian uh, suggested that. Um, dispensationalists almost universally conclude it is Moses and Elijah. Uh, some will say uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the, the king and high priest uh, at the end of the Old Testament, uh, based off of Zechariah where I believe it is. And there, there are a dozen other options you, you can look at. Uh, I will say that if, if you're taking what is done in this text to, to attach it to someone we know, I do think Moses and Elijah are, are, are the best, so particularly if you take a literal interpretation. Uh, the reference to fire and, and everything else uh, fits within um, what Moses and Elijah did. But with that said, uh, I, I do suspect maybe we're missing the point. The point isn't who they are, but the tradition they find themselves in, right? And so, uh, so I think what we have, and in light of what we talked about yesterday in chapter 10, the two witnesses are a continuation of the little scroll. Remember, the John consumes the, the little scroll. It is uh, sweet and bitter all at the same time. Um, and, and I think chapter 11 is, is uh, part of that, that conversation. So what we saw there was the message of the gospel going out. And what you have here are two witnesses doing precisely that. So if, if, if you had to ask me who I think these two witnesses represent, I, I think they're figurative, they're symbolic. I believe they're representing uh, the church on mission. Okay. And, and the reason I would say, say that is because, verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, that lampstand is significant because, and this again, this my interpretation could be wrong. If you go back to chapters 2 and 3 with the letters to the churches, which to me is the interpretive um, uh, uh, standard by which we, we interpret everything else, uh, in Revelation, those lampstands represented the church. Remember Jesus saying that if you don't repent, I'll remove your lampstand. Right? So you have the seven stars of the seven churches. Well, uh, if that is a consistent interpretation, then what we have are two lampstands uh, and, and, of course, two olive trees, um, and they're standing for the Lord of the earth. So, so perhaps uh, uh, being that in Old Testament law, you had to have two witnesses to verify a truth. So too, these two perhaps represent not this, the seven churches of Asia, Maya, Asia Minor this is written to, but the uh, church broadly speaking. 
and notice what they do. They they go and they 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 prophesy, they preach, they 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 call people to repent. And we get this by uh, the clothes they wear. So if you go back up to verse three, they are clothed in sackcloth. And immediately we think of Elijah and John the Baptist, don't we? And there's a reason for that. Sackcloth was was symbolic of mourning, lamentation, and repentance. Um, and so when the prophets arrive wearing sackcloth, it's not a just because they have no fashion sense, but because they, by their presence, are calling on people to repent. And well, that, that is a theme we see throughout the, the book of Revelation, isn't it? In uh, chapters 2 and 3, uh, Christ calls on the churches to repent. Um, you know, repent and renew your first love. You're neither hot or cold. You're lukewarm. You know, remember and repent. Well, then, since then, we've seen with the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, people know they are being condemned by God, and yet they still refuse to repent. And so here comes the church armed with the message of the gospel, a little scroll. And what is it they are calling people to do? Wearing sackcloth, they are calling on people to repent. And so we have the hope of the gospel. Remember the 144,000 witnesses representing the global church, uh, that, that, that people will be redeemed. The kingdom of God will, will, will expand. And, and yet what we see here is opposition to that, that gospel, that, that church. And you see that they prophesy for 1,260 days. Now that is 42 months. That is three and a half years. Now, three and a half is half of seven, okay? Now, why that matters is because if you grow up in a dispensationalist background, you'll know that the number seven, uh, particularly when it comes to the chronology of Revelation, is very literal. So the argument goes among dispensationalists is that the tribulation will last for seven years. And at the halfway point, 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days, the uh, Antichrist will... Uh, so, so there will be a treaty with Israel seven years. Antichrist will break it at the halfway point, ushering in the Great Tribulation. Um, and the two witnesses fit in this. I think they're usually put at the beginning, um, but, but others will put them at the end, whatever. So it's a very literal. Now, you can go back into history and into um, uh, the Bible, and you see that 42 months is a significant date. Uh, I believe 42 months is... Uh, the time that Antiochus, um, during the intertestamental period, desecrated the temple. I think Daniel mentions uh, th this sort of time period. And there's other references. Some make a connection to the persecution of Christians in Rome under Nero. Some will, will point it to the destruction of the temple, that it was 42 months. I, it, it's, I, I, th I don't think we should be very, very literal on some of this sort of stuff. But we need to see is this is for a time, and it's for a set time, that the church will prophesy, and there will be opposition, but the church is triumphant over it. I think that's the broad story of the two witnesses. And so you see verse 5, anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth, consumes their foes. If anyone harmed them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now, in the Left Behind series, they literally do this, right? And it's caught on CNN and goes around the world. And it's, it's an awesome scene if you're a teenage boy like I was. Um, I'm not sure, again, we should take this literally because nowhere in the Bible are Christians encouraged to do this, right? We just, John, John and, and uh, his brother, uh, James, the disciples, ask Jesus to do that. Can we, not you, but can we call down fire from heaven and consume these people? And he's like, 
no, we're, we're, we're not going to do spontaneous combustion, right, in the kingdom of God. So I don't think the point is that this is literally going to happen. I think it is more symbolic that though there is opposition, the the gospel will be triumphant. Um, verse 6, they have power to shut the sky. They may not rain. Um, rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood. You see the Elijah Moses here. To strike the earth of every kind of plague as often as they desire. Um, now, the issue isn't that the church has the power over the weather, but is again, um, uh, they, they, there is opposition to them, but, but, but the church, right, the gates of hell will not prevail. Uh, verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make a war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now, two things to notice here. One, who's the beast? Hold on that question. We'll get to it in due time. I think it's chapter 13. I could be wrong on that. Um, so... Let's just wait to talk about the beast later on um, and give me more time to uh, think more on it. Um, but you see that um, um, he comes to conquer them and to kill them. Remember that conquering is a major theme in this. We've talked about this early on, I believe in our first day looking at Revelation 1. Uh, so, so you remember that Jesus tells the church to, to, to overcome, to conquer. And so what we have then is, is this, this battle between the beast who tries to conquer the two witnesses, who I think is the church armed with the gospel, um, and then the call to the church to overcome. And what we see is, though the beast thinks that through opposition he has conquered the church, what we see is a, reju a rejuvenated, renewed church. Okay, So the beast comes to destroy and to kill. And uh, verse 8, their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And so, referencing Jerusalem, right, that there, there, there is uh, um, uh, persecution, if you will. Again, is this a future event? Is this past? Is it present? My reading of Revelation, it's all of the above. Um, but it's interesting that Jerusalem is compared to Sodom in Egypt. It is a very Jewish way of viewing, not of Jerusalem, but of cities in general. Um, verse 9, for three and a half days. So notice that they they will minister for three and a half years, but they will lie in the street for three and a half days. I don't think that's an accident. Um, some of the, from the people, from the people's tribes, language, the nations. Now that language is taken from chapter 5, taken from chapter 7. Uh, this is typical. So so in heaven, what you have is people from all tribes, tongues, and people groups are, are worshiping the, the lamb who is worthy to be slain. But on earth, what we see is that um, they are celebrating uh, the, the, the persecution and supposed destruction of the church. Right, so so we see this this dichotomy. Um, they will gaze at their dead bodies, refuse to let them be placed in the tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. It's Christmas all over again, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life—that's language borrowed from the story of Adam and Eve. Um, from God injured them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So, again. Um, um, I don't think this is literal. Like you have two witnesses necessarily, and all this sort of thing. That that's a dispensationalist view, um, and 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 I get that. Um, but I, I think what it is is that persecution never eliminates the church, and that is something we Christians have to understand. So the church may be on the decline in America. That doesn't mean Christianity is on decline. 
In fact, I've said on here before, right now, if you were to look at global Christianity and you were asked, what does the average Christian in the world look like? They do not look like a white Southerner voting Republican. They don't. They look Asian. They look African. They look South American. And, and, and the church is growing significantly in those areas. It's struggling in the West as secularism rises. Um, but what we need to see here is that at no point in church history was opposition or persecution uh, a means of destroying the church. The gates of hell will not prevail. Well, let's finish this out. We, we get the seventh trumpet starting in verse 15. Remember, uh, the seventh seal opens the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet opens up the seven bowls. Um, so, uh, and there we see the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. So what we're seeing in Revelation is how we, we may speak of the kingdom of God. That's the, that's the Christian hope. And that we see the kingdom of God, but we also see the kingdom of man. Augustine talks a lot about this. He has a whole book dedicated called The City of God. That we Christians, we, we live both in the city of God and city of man, and it's, it's difficult to, to understand how, how all of it works, right? And this is where debates over politics and ethics and culture and all that come out. But what we see here is actually, no, what we're going to have is one king, one kingdom, one nation, one world. Right, and, and, and so the blowing of the trumpets, particularly the seventh trumpet, ushers that in. And how does it come? It comes about through the preaching of the gospel, which is what the two witnesses are. So we get more worship in uh, verses 17 to 18. But I want to read verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was open, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. I just want to pause and say, notice, this is not a literal temple. Um, and... Uh, Excuse me. Um, I don't have the Rona. Um, but um, what you have here is um, God's presence being made known again on the earth, which is the hope of the day of the Lord and new heavens and a new earth, which we will come to as Revelation unfolds. What's the main point? Do not fret over the future of the church. I say to myself and I say to you, the church is in good hands because the church is in the hands of God. What is our job? To preach and proclaim the hope we have in Jesus and leave everything else to Christ. Despite opposition, we are called to preach. Be faithful. Be faithful. Hope to see you tomorrow.